Well, good morning, church. It is um, going to be interesting this morning. I remember about 9.30 last night that I was supposed to preach this morning, so that's not true. That's not true, but I did think of that joke at 9.30 last night, so thanks for those of you who laugh. Appreciate that. Um, in all seriousness, um, I've been looking forward to this day for quite some time since I was told I was going to get uh, the opportunity to preach. Um, as a lowly student pastor, and Kyle mentioned this a few weeks ago, when there's already two uh, lead pastors vying for time in the pulpit, us lowly student ministers kind of get um, pushed to the side. And we don't get as many opportunities to stand before you as a whole church except for to do announcements, which I always drag out because I like to be up here and get to talk to you guys and see all your smiling faces. Uh, but I am very excited about what God's word has to say to us today. I'm also very excited about something that starts back tonight, and that is our life group. So if you have gotten and plugged into a life group, you know how transformational these can be to your um, faith and to your um, community here at Alberta Baptist Church um, and into the desire to know God and find community and live on mission even further. And so we encourage you, those of you who have not gotten into a life group yet, tonight is the night for you. And I want to talk about one specifically as a um, item of personal indulgence, I guess you could say, is that we actually are starting a youth life group tonight. It's going to be at Andrew and Brittany Perkins' home. And so if you are a person out there who has a heart for teenagers and a desire to invest in them, um, come see me and let's talk about how we can get you involved in that, specifically through um, that life group that is going to be starting up tonight as well. But today we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, as you see in your worship guide. And I am uh, very excited, like I said, about what God's Word has to share with us today. And we're going to be looking at the second half. And so as you're turning there um, in your Bibles, you may already have turned, I want to remind you of something. Today is Sunday. Today is August 28th, 2016. It's College Lunch Sunday, so college students, another reminder to you, uh, if you're here at whether the first time or for the first time in a long time, or you've been coming for a long time. Whatever it is, we invite you to come and eat lunch. We're having chicken spaghetti. You will not regret staying for lunch, let me tell you. But today's also one week after ABC Connect. We had a wonderful event um, at the River Market last week, celebrating our church's vision, celebrating who we are as a people, and desiring to connect even further as God's people here at Alberta Baptist Church. Today is also less than one week until Alabama football begins. Can I get a roll tide? All right. So there are some big things about today. But in addition to all those things, there's also something else we want to remember today. Today is an anniversary. To be exact, it is the 53rd anniversary. That's right. August 28th, 1963. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. Dr. King opened his speech with a statement, I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. He went on to lament that 100 years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, there was still freedom and equality that had not been granted to his people, that racial inequality and injustice were still very much alive in this country. See, Martin Luther King Jr. understood the word hostility. 
He'd experienced it. He had seen his people experience it. Dr. King had a dream for this nation and for him and for his people. He spoke hopefully and boldly about it that day. He made statements such as, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He made statements like, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Dr. King had a vision for a better America. It was and still is a great vision. As great as that vision was and still is, as much as we should continue to seek that out in our nation, I'm here to tell you today that our God has an even greater vision. Our God has an even better vision. And this vision is not a dream, but it is a divine decree. It is a providential plan. It is a sovereign certainty. And you and I get the privilege of being part of it, not only in eternity, but now, today. And so with that, we turn to the word of God in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments in place, law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray, church. Father, as we look at your word today, God, we ask that, God, you will do what only you by your spirit can do and that you will illumine our minds and you will quicken our hearts, God. That, God, that things that still remain dead would be brought to life and that we might leave here as a people who are changed. So in these moments to follow, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing your sight for your glory and for our good. In the name of Christ, I pray, amen. 
Now, if you're following along in your outline in your worship guide, and I would encourage you to do so, um, although there's not a whole lot there, so there's room for you to write down stuff. Uh, But you'll see that the first thing that we must understand about this text in front of us today is that there was a time when everyone, time when everyone, each of us was separated and alienated from Christ. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, in the passage just before this, Paul explains that part, apart from Christ, all people are dead in our sins. Dead. Not just bad. Not just not as good as we could be. We were dead. And that we had been brought to life by faith in Jesus Christ. But here in verses 11 and 12, Paul focuses on the specific context of Gentile believers. Again, Paul is addressing in this text um, Jews and Gentiles and their differences. And we'll come back to that here in a a little bit. For now, um, we'll come back to verse 11 and focus on verse 12. Because Paul reminds these Gentile Christians that they were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from God's people, the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope and they were without God in the world. This was the reality for Gentile Christians before faith in Jesus Christ. In summation, you might say, as Paul does later, that they were far off from Christ. Far off. And that means they were also far off from his people. And for every person here today, there was a time when you and I were also separated from God because of our sin. That is a grim reality that we all must come to grips with. And for some of you, that is a reality that's still the case. If you have not yet come to faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. But Romans 3.23 reminds us specifically that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And Genesis 3 goes all the way back to the beginning when we see the account of how the serpent came in and having been given reign over everything in God's creation, the man and the woman were given one restriction. One restriction. You may not eat of this tree. And through that one restriction, Satan brought in deception and he caused for the first time human beings to mistrust the goodness of God and to distrust his word. And ever since then, every single one of us is born into that same reality of sinfulness. We are sinful by our nature. We are all at one time separated from Christ and from his people. It's the reality. And were it not for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we will very much focus on today, and the proclamation of his gospel that was carried on by the apostles, no Gentile, including you and I who are in this room today, would be able to know God or be a part of his people. The Jews had it, however, Paul points out here, that they had every advantage. They had every advantage. Every reason not to have realized that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. Every reason to come to faith in him. Every reason to trust God, that he is faithful and true always to them. You might say, as Paul does in verse 17, that they were those who were near to the covenants and the people of God. In Romans 3, 2, Paul breaks this down that they did have every advantage. They they were entrusted with the ordinances of God. They had been given the outward sign of circumcision, which they took great pride in, and we will look at later. The Jews had every advantage. And some of you, like me, may be in a similar situation. You may have been going to church since you were in the womb. 
you may have not remembered a time when you were separated from the people of God. And like the Jews, you have so many advantages to coming to faith in Christ. That may not be the case for everyone, however. Some of you may have come to faith within the last week. Some of you may have come to faith later in life, separated from the church, and only now are becoming part of God's people. But whatever the case, we have to realize something. That just as there are many advantages to us who were born into a Christian family and a Christian household and raised in church, just as the Jews had many advantages, circumcision to them was not what saved them. In the same way, you being born into a Christian family does not save you. You going to church and being brought to church by your family does not save you. Salvation is not a birthright. It only comes by being born again in Jesus Christ. So the reality is that for every person, we must come to that faith. We must come to that point where we believe. And it's only then, whether near or far, that we come into the body of Christ, that we are reconciled to God and to his people. And let me make one other comment to those of you who weren't raised in church. Let me tell you something. You are no less a Christian than someone who came to faith at the age of five and has been going to church since they were in the womb. Okay? You are no less a Christian, no less a part of God's people. And you will not be more of a Christian by making your life look like theirs. You have been redeemed by the blood of Christ the same way that anyone else comes to salvation. Salvation is not a birthright. It comes only through being born again by Jesus Christ and through faith in him. And furthermore, Galatians 2.16 tells us that no one, Jew or Gentile, will be justified by works of the law. So just going to church, reading your Bible, praying, those things are not what saves you. Those are things that can point to the reality of salvation. They do not save us. There is no work by Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, that will ever save us. Only the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. We all must remember the truth of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace that we are saved. It is not of our own doing, but a gift from God. It is not something that we've earned by our works, but something that we've received by faith. And therefore, it is something that no one, Jew or Gentile, black or white, male or female, young or old, may boast about. Only can we boast in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so whether salvation came to us from near as it did for the Jews or from far off as it did from the Gentiles, salvation comes only through Jesus. And prior to faith in him, we all had the same background, dead in our sins. But praise be to God, we are brought to life in Jesus Christ. But this reality that we first have to realize that we are separated and alienated from Christ is what Karl Barth calls the great no of the gospel. God's no to people. But praise be to God, there is a yes that far outweighs the no. As we turn to our second point today, we see that. And in verse 13, it focuses on the fact that we have been brought near and reconciled by Christ. Verse 13 goes on to give us 
one of the great buts of the Bible. It's okay, you can laugh. It's all right. One of the great buts in the Bible. There are so many great statements that begin with that three-letter word, but. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, where if you look back, we see that it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul continues in Ephesians 2 verse 14 saying that Christ himself is our peace and that he has brought down the dividing wall of hostility. And this peace that he now transitions to focuses on not at this time peace with God, but peace with each other. And in the specific context he was writing in, peace between Jew and Gentile. I told you we'd come back to verse 11. And as we do, we see that at the time Paul was writing that circumcision to Israel was this outward sign that they were belonging to the people of God. It was a sign they took great pride in. And thus to refer to someone as being uncircumcised, as they often called Gentiles, was to be, it was a demeaning term, and it was to see them as both inferior and unworthy. The Jews absolutely despised Gentiles. And so when Paul writes that Christ is their peace, he has brought down the wall of hostility, he's making a statement that we cannot miss the weight of, and the importance of. Christ has brought down the worst walls of hostility that we can, as people dead in our sins, can attempt to build up. Christ is amazing in what he's able to do. And so when Jews saw themselves as superior and would refuse to eat with Gentiles, much less live and worship with them, Christ has said that is a thing of the past. In Herod's temple, there was an outer court that was reserved for the Gentiles specifically. And it had a wall going around it that went around the outside of the main part of the temple, this thick, large stone wall. And for Jews to go into the temple, they would have to pass through the court of the Gentiles and go into the main part of the temple. And as they would, there was passageways. And at those passageways, the historian Josephus records that there were signs in Greek and in Latin, so all the Gentiles would be able to read them. And on those signs was written a warning to Gentiles. No foreigner should go within the sanctuary. Very real dividing wall of hostility in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And Christ died around 30 AD, and yet this wall stood for roughly another 40 years until Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. You see, here's what we can't miss. For those 40 years, that wall stood obsolete. Its power was gone. A greater reality had been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Reality that it came by him bringing down every wall of hostility that would divide. In similar fashion, after the civil rights movement and desegregation, black people were often 
denied the access to worship with white believers, made to sit in the balcony or sometimes even made to not even allowed to come inside the doors. And that is no doubt why today, even today, it's widely stated that the most segregated time of the week in America is during Sunday morning service. I am thankful to our great God of grace. The Alberta Baptist Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial congregation. And yet the fact still remains for us that when we have hostility in our hearts toward our brother and sister in Christ because their skin is a different color, because they were born in a different country, because they have, they're from a different socioeconomic class, or because they're from a different generation with different preferences, we are attempting to build up walls of hostility that have already been torn down by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross. How dare I, how dare any of us attempt to do such a thing, to rebuild what Christ has destroyed forever, killing the hostility. As a people, we are called to something far greater. Jesus Christ died so that we might be at peace with one another. Why? Well, verse 15 goes on to say, so that he might create in himself one new man. And verse 16 continues, and might reconcile us both, both Jew and Gentile, both black and white, both Asian and Latino, both male and female, both young and old, that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Only this time the hostility is now referring to the hostility between us and God. Because you see, Christ died to kill the hostility between man and man. He also died to kill the hostility between us and God. Our rebellion towards God and God's wrath towards us. Jesus bore all of that on the cross that it might be put to death forever to reconcile us as one new people. You might even say an entirely new society, an entirely new humanity in his body on the cross to be reconciled to God, to be reconciled to one another, to be reconciled people. When we look at the world around us, what we see is a society a humanity not marked by reconciliation, but very much marked by the hostility that we've already addressed today. And that hostility is then met with more hostility. One initiates, the other retaliates. The finger game point, the finger pointing game ensues after that. And blame is dispersed. I'm here to tell you today, church, we must be a people that that is not the case of. As the church, the people of God, we are called to have a heart that says, it doesn't matter who started it. Christ Jesus has finished it forever. We are called to a greater heart than the heart of this world. We are called out of this world. This is not our home. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But C.S. Lewis wrote this once. He said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. 
See, when we consider how great our sin is against God, what R.C. Sproul defined as cosmic treason, it puts the sin that people sin against us in a different light. And we're called to remember the words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are a people who are called to be marked by reconciliation. And that is not achievable without forgiveness in our hearts. Realizing that we have had the inexcusable forgiven us by God. Verse 17 reminds us that Christ has proclaimed a gospel of peace. The same gospel was preached to the Gentile far off and to the Jew who is near, to the white American who came to Christ in a nursing home on his deathbed, and to the black American who came to Christ at the age of five. No matter our racial, socioeconomic, generational, or any other number of differences, Christ came and proclaimed the same gospel and as a gospel of peace. And still today, through us as his redeemed and reconciled people, Christ preaches the same gospel of peace throughout the whole world to those both near and far. Furthermore, when we believe that gospel, placing our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ, we are together promised access in one spirit to the Father. No matter our past, no matter our present, the words of Jesus in John 14, 6 ring true for us all. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. With his death on the cross, Jesus Christ purchased for us peace with God and peace with one another. We no longer have to be slaves to hostility within the body of Christ. And to do so is to deny the power of Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. We have been brought into an entirely new humanity by faith in Christ that is characterized by grace and peace and love and reconciliation. This brings us to our final section of the text and of today's outline, that now, by the work of Jesus Christ, we are fellow citizens and members of the household of God in Christ. According to verse 19, there are no longer any strangers or aliens within the people of God, but only fellow citizens and members of the household of God. See, an alien had no status, no rights, no security in the kingdom he was living in. None of that. No rights. But as Paul demonstrates in very stark contrast, citizens have all the rights belonging to that nation and that people and to its king who gives freely. And Colossians 1, 13 and 14 makes very clear what God has done for us, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The rights, these inalienable rights, you might say, 
They come along with this tradition. They're not life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness. This tradition assures us eternal life, enduring freedom for sin, and everlasting joy in our God. But we are also not only no longer aliens. We're no longer strangers. We've been brought into God's kingdom, yes, but we've also been brought into God's family. Into a household, a household that Paul alludes to here, but in Romans 8, 15 through 17, writes, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Then we would all probably agree that family at least should be those with whom we have the closest and strongest relationships. And family of God is no different. Family of God is no different. In fact, as I've said before, the blood-bought family is actually greater than the blood-kin family. The blood-bought family of Christ is greater than any biological or earthly connection we could have. And through that, we have this promise that though we may see our biological families plagued with hostility and gossip and unforgiveness, such will not be the case and will not be said of the church of God and the family of God. We are called to be a family that's characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is our calling. This is our citizenship. This is what we have been brought into as the family of God. But not only are we brought into God's kingdom, not only are we brought into God's family, but verse 21 also tells us that we are made into God's temple. Verse 21 declares that in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Paul goes on then to clarify in verse 22 that in him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God's Holy Spirit is at work building us up, yes, individually, but together corporately as a people to be a holy temple and a dwelling place for our God. And what And this is the dwelling place that Revelation 21, verses three through four looks forward to in its completion. And it reads, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Hostility is gone. And we have the tremendous opportunity, church, 
to be a part of that greater reality that now exists even today as we wait for its completion. And as we wait, we have the promise of Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 that says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Former temple in Jerusalem had a wall dividing Gentiles and Jews. A curtain dividing God and man. But the temple that has been created in the body of Jesus Christ, slain on the cross but resurrected out from the grave three days later, that temple is a temple with no dividing walls. Those walls have been forever destroyed and brought down by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we must not dare to build them up again within his body. We've been called out of hostility and into peace. We've been called out of division and into unity as the people of God who are given access to the Father through the death and resurrection of the Son and are now indwelled by the Holy Spirit. John R.W. Sott wrote, It takes the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. All the saints together, Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles, men and women, young and old, black and white, with all their varied backgrounds and experiences. See, it is our great diversity that makes our unity in Christ all the greater. Jesus Christ has broken down every wall of hostility, both between us and God and between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must be a people who are willing to fight to tear down those walls, both in our own lives and in the lives of our church. And one day, we will be among those mentioned in Revelation 5 that Keith read earlier. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Dr. King had a great dream for his people and for his nation. And our God, through Jesus Christ, has declared a divine decree that his children would not judge one another based on race or class or gender, but by the reconciling work of their mutual and their only Savior, Jesus Christ. For Christ, who unites us, is far greater than anything that could ever divide us. Alberta Baptist Church, let us live in that reality and live out that truth in our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray 